Book 10, Part 2 of Ovid's Metamorphoses. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Shalifa Malachem. Metamorphoses by Publius Ovidius Nasser. Translated by Brooks Moore. Book 10, Part 2. Pygmalion saw these women wasted their lives in wretched shame, and critical of faults which nature had so deeply planted through their female hearts, he lived in preference for many years unmarried. But while he was single, with consummate skill, he carved a statue out of snow-white ivory, and gave to it exquisite beauty which no woman of the world has ever equalled. She was so beautiful he fell in love with his creation. It appeared, in truth, a perfect virgin with the grace of life, but in the expression of such modesty all motion was restrained, and so his art concealed his art. Pygmalion gazed, inflamed, with love and admiration for the form and semblance of a woman he had carved. He lifts up both his hand to feel the work, and wonders if it can be ivory, because it seems to him more truly flesh, his mind refusing to conceive of it as ivory, he kisses it, and feels his kisses are returned, and speaking love, caresses it with loving hands that seem to make an impress on the part of they touch, so real that he fears he then may bruise her by his eager pressing. Softest tones are used each time he speaks to her. He brings to her such presents as are surely prized by sweet girls, such as smooth round pebbles, shells and birds, and fragrant flowers of thousand tints, lilies and painted balls, and amber tears of heliots, which it distill from far-off trees. He drapes her in rich clothing and in gems, rings on her fingers, a rich necklace round her neck, pearl pendants on her graceful ears, and golden ornaments adorn her breast. All these are beautiful." and she appears most lovable, if carefully attired, or perfect as a statue, unadorned. He lays her on a bed luxurious, spread with coverlets of Tyrian purple dye, and naming her the concert of his couch, lays her reclining head on the most soft and downy pillows, trusting she could feel. The festal day of Venus, known throughout all Cyprus, now had come, and throngs were there to celebrate. Hyphers with spreading horns, all gold-tipped, fell when given them the stroke of death upon their snow-white necks, and frankincense was smoking on the altars. There, intent, Pygmalion stood before an altar, when his offering had been made, and although he feared the result, he prayed, "'If it is true, O gods, that you can give all things,' I pray to have as my wife, but he did not dare to add my ivory statue made, and said, One like my ivory. Golden Venus heard, for she was present at her festival, and she knew clearly what the prayer had meant. She gave a sign that her divinity favoured his plea. Three times the flame leaped high and brightly in the air. When he returned, he went directly to his image made bent over her, and kissed her many times while she was on her couch. And as he kissed, 
she seemed to gather some warmth from his lips. Again he kissed her, and he felt her breast. The ivory seemed to soften at the touch, and its firm texture yielded to his hand, as honey-wax of Mount Hematis turns to many shapes when handled in the sun. And surely, and surely softens from each gentle touch. He is amazed, but stands rejoicing in his doubt, while fearful there is some mistake. Again and yet again gives trial to his hopes by touching with his hand. It must be flesh. The veins pulsate beneath a careful test of his directed finger. Then, indeed, the astonished hero poured out lavish thanks to Venus, pressing with his raptured lips his statue's lips. Now real, true to life, the maiden felt the kisses given to her, and blushing, lifted up her timid eyes, so that she saw the light in sky above, as well as a rapt lover, while he leaned gazing beside her, and all this at once. The goddess graced the marriage she had willed, and when nine times a crescent moon had changed, increasing to the full, the statue bride gave birth to her dear daughter, Paphos, from which famed event the island takes its name. The royal Kinuras was sprung from her, and if he had been father of no child, might well have been accounted fortunate. But I must sing of horrible events. Avoid it, daughters, parents, shun this tale. But if my verse has charmed your thoughts, do not give me such credit in this part. Convince yourself it cannot be true life. Or if against my wish you hear and must believe it, then be sure to notice how such wickedness gets certain punishment. And yet, if nature could permit such crimes as this to happen, I congratulate Ismarian people and old Thracy as well, and I congratulate this nation, which we know is far away from the land where this vile abomination did occur. The land we call Pankaya may be rich in balsam, cinnamon, and costume sweet for ointment, frankincense distilled from trees, with many flowers besides. All this large wealth combined could never compensate the land for this detestable one crime, even though the new marjorie advanced on that rich soil. Cupid declares his weapons never caused an injury to Mira, and denies his torches ever could have urged her crime. One of the three bad sisters kindled this, with firebrand from the sticks, and poisoned you with swollen vipers. It is criminal to hate a parent, but love such as hers is certainly more criminal than hate. The chosen princes of all lands desire you now in marriage, and young men throughout the Orient are vying for your hand. Choose, Mira, one from all of these for your good husband, but exclude from such a thought your father only. She indeed is quite aware, and struggles bitterly against her vile desires, and argues in her heart, What am I tending to? O oh, listening gods, I pray for aid, I pray to natural love. Ah, may the sacred right of parents keep this vile desire from me, defend me from a crime so great. If it indeed is crime, I am not sure it is. I have not heard that any god or written law condemns the union of a parent and his child. All animals will mate, as they desire. A hyphen may endure her sire, and who condemns it? and the heavy star is not refused by his mad daughters. 
the he-goat consorts unthought of with the flock of which he is the father, and the birds conceive of those from whom they were themselves begot. Happy are they who have such privilege. Malignant men have given spiteful laws, and what is right in nature is decreed unnatural by jealous laws of men. But it is said, there are some tribes to-day in which the mother marries her own son, the daughter takes a father, and by this the love kind nature gives of them is increased into a double bond. Ah, wretched me! Why was it not my fortune to be born in that love-blessed land? I must abide, depressed by my misfortunes in this place. Why do I dwell on these forbidden hopes? Let me forget to think of lawless flame. My father is most worthy of my love, but only as a father. If I were not born the daughter of great Sonoras, I might be joined to him. But as it stands, because he is mine, he is never mine. Because near to me is far from me. It would be better for me if we were but strangers to each other. For I then could wish to go, and leave my native land, and so escape temptation to this crime. But my unhappy passion holds me here, that I might see Sonorus face to face, and touch him, talk with him, and even kiss him, the best if nothing else can be allowed. But what more could be asked for by the most depraved? Think of the many sacred tides and lofty names. You are dragging to the mire. The rival of your mother, will you be the mistress of your father, and be named the sister of your son, and make yourself the mother of your brother? And will you not dread the sisters with black snakes for hair, whom guilty creatures, such as you, can see brandish relentless flames before their eyes and faces? While your body has not sinned, you must not let sin creep into your heart, and violate great nature's law with your unlawful rovings. If you had the right to long for his endearment, it could not be possible. He is a virtuous man, and is regardful of the moral law. Oh, how I wish my passion could be his! And so she argued and declared her love, but Sinaras, her father, who was urged by such a throng of suitors for her hand, that he could make no choice, at last inquired of her, so she might make her heart's wish known, and as he named them over, asked her, would she fixed her gaze upon her father's face, and doubt or agony what she could say, while hot tears filled her eyes. Her father, sure it all was of a virginal alarm, as he is telling her she need not weep, dries her wet cheeks and kisses her sweet lips, too much delighted with his gentle words and kind endearments. Mira, when he asked again which one might be her husband, said, The one just like yourself. And he replied, not understanding what her heart would say, You answer as a loving daughter should. When she heard loving daughter said, the girl, too conscious of her guilt, looked on the ground. It was now midnight. Peaceful sleep dissolved the world care of all mortals, but of her, who, sleepless through the night, burned in the flame of her misplaced affection. First despair compels her to abandon every hope, and then she changes and resolves to try, and so she wavers from desire to shame, for she could not adhere to any plan, 
as great tree cut by the swinging axe is chopped until the last blow has been struck then sways and threatens danger to all sides so does her weak mind cut with many blows waver unsteadily this way and that and turning back and forth it finds no rest from passion save the rest that lies in death the thought of death gave comfort to her heart resolved to hang herself she set up right then as she tied her girdle to a beam she said farewell beloved sinners and may you know the cause of my sad death and while she spoke those words her fingers fixed the noosed rope close around her death-pale neck. They say the murmur of despairing words was heard by her attentive nurse, who watched outside the room, and, fateful as of old, she opened the shut-door. But when she saw the frightful preparations made for death, the old nurse screamed and beat and tore her breast, then seized and snatched the robe from Mira's neck, and after she had torn the news apart, at last she had the time to weep, and time, while she embraced the girl, to ask her why the halter had been fastened round her neck. The girl, in stubborn silence, only fixed her eyes upon the ground, sad that her first attempt at death, because too slow, was spoiled. The old nurse woman urged and urged, and showed her grey hair and her withered breasts, and begged her, by the memory of her cradle days and baby nourishment, to hide no more from a long-trusted nurse what caused to grieve. The girl turned from her questions with a sigh. The nurse, still more determined to know all, promised fidelity and her best aid. "'Tell me,' she said, "'and let me give you help. My old age offers means for your relief. If it be frantic passion, I have charms and healing herbs.' or if an evil spell was worked on you by some one, you shall be cured to your perfect self by magic rites, or if your actions have enraged the gods, a sacrifice will satisfy their wrath. What else could be the cause? Your family and you are prosperous, your mother dear and your loved father are alive and well. And when she heard her say the name of father, a sigh heaved up from her distracted heart. But even after that, the nurse could not conceive such evil in the girl's sick heart, and yet she had a feeling it must be only a love affair could cause a crime, and with persistent purpose backed the cause. She pressed the weeping girl against her breast, and as she held her in her feeble arms, she said, "'Sweetheart, I know you are in love. In this affair I am entirely yours for your good service. You must have no fear.' Your father cannot learn of it from me. Just like a mad girl, Mira sprang away, and with her face deep buried in a couch, sobbed out, Go from me, or stop asking me my cause of grief. It is a crime of shame, I cannot tell it. Horrified, the nurse stretched forth her trembling hands, palsied with age and fear. She fell down at the feet of a loved foster child, and coaxing her and frightening her, she threatened to disclose her knowledge of the halter, and of what she knew of her attempted suicide. And after all was said, she gave her word to help the girl, when she had given to her a true confession of a sad heart love. 
the girl just lifted up her face and laid it, weeping, on the bosom of her nurse. She tried so often to confess, and just as often checked her words, the shamed face hid deep in her garment. Oh, at last she groaned, oh, mother, blessing your husband, oh. Only that much, she said and groaned. The nurse felt a cold horror stealing through her heart and frame, for she now understood it all, and her white hair stood bristling on her head, while with the utmost care of love and art she strove to use appropriate words and deeds to banish the mad passion of the girl. Though Mira knew that she was truly warned, she was resolved to die, unless she could obtain the object of her wicked love. The nurse gave way at last in defeat, and said, Live and enjoy, but did not dare to say, Your father, did not finish, though she promised and confirmed it with an oath. It was a time when matrons celebrate the annual festival of Ceres. Then, all robed in decent garments of snow-white, they bring garlands of freshest weed, which are first fruits of worship, and for nine nights they must count for bitter every act of love, and shun the touch of man. And in that throng, Cancres, the king's wife, with constant care attended every sacred rite. And so, while the king's bed was lacking his true wife, one of those nights, King Cinerus was drunk with too much wine. The scheming nurse informed him of a girl most beautiful, whose love for him was passionate. In a false tale she pictured a true passion. When he asked the maiden's age, she answered, just the same as Mira's. Bidden by the king to go and fetch her, the officious old nurse, when she found the girl, cried out, Rejoice, my dear, we have contrived it. The unhappy girl could not feel genuine joy in her amazed and startled body. Her dazed mind was filled with a strange forebodings, but she did believe her heart was joyful. Great excitement filled her wrecked heart with such inconsistencies. Now was a time when nature is at rest. Between the bears, Boots turned his way down to the west, and the guilty mirror turns to her enormity. The golden moon flies from the heaven, and black clouds cover the hiding stars, and night has lost her fires. The first to hide were stars of Icarus and of Arigone, and hallowed love devoted to her father. Mira thrice was warned by omen of her stumbling foot. The funeral screech owl also warned her thrice, with dismal cry. Yet Mira onward goes. It seems to her the black knight lessens shame. She holds fast to her nurse with her left hand, and with the other hand gropes through the dark. And now they go until she finds the door. Now at the threshold of her father's room, she softly pushes back the door. Her nurse takes her within. The girl's knees trembling sink beneath her. Her drawn, bloodless face had lost his colour, and while she moves to the crime, bad courage goes from her, until afraid of her bold effort, she would gladly turn unrecognised. But as she hesitates, the aged crone still holds her by the hand, and leading her up to the high bed, there delivering mirror, says, Now, Cinerus, you take her, she's yours, 
and leaves the pair doomed in their crime. The father to pollute his own flesh in his own bed, where he tries first to encourage her from maiden fears, by gently talking to the timid girl. He chanced to call her daughter, as a name best suited to her age, and she in turn, endearing, called him father, so no names might be omitted to complete their guilt. She staggered from his chamber with the crime of her own father hidden in her womb, and their guilt was repeated many nights, till Cinerus, determined he must know his mistress, after many meetings, brought a light and knew his crime had harmed his daughter. Speechless in shame, he drew forth his bright sword out from the scabbard where it hung nearby. But frightened Mira fled, and so escaped death in the shadows of dark night. Groping her pathless way at random through the fields, she left Arabia, famed for spreading palms, and wandered through Pankean lands. Until after nine months of Amos' wandering days, she rested in Sabia, for she could not hold the burden she had borne so long. Not knowing what to pray for, moved alike by fear of death and weariness of life, her wishes were expressed in prayer. O oh gods, if you will listen to my prayer, I do not shun a dreadful punishment deserved. But now, because my life offends the living, and dying I offend the dead, drive me from both conditions, change me, and refuse my flesh both life and death. Some gods did listen to her unnatural prayer. Her last petition had answering gods. For even as she prayed, the earth closed over her legs, roots grew out, and, stretching forth obliquely from her nails, gave strong support to a rub-grown trunk. Her bones got harder, and her marrow, still unchanged, kept to the centre, as her blood was changed to sap, as her outstretching arms became long branches, and her fingers twigs, and as her soft skin hardened into bark and the fast-growing tree had closely bound her womb, still heavy, and had covered her soft bosom, and was spreading quickly up to her neck. She cannot endure the strain, and sinking down into the rising wood, her whole face soon was hidden in the bark. Although all sense of human life was gone, as quickly as she lost her human form, her weeping was continued, and warm drops distilled from her, the tree, ceased not to fall. There is a virtue even in her tears. The valued myrrh distilling from the trunk keeps to her name, by which she still is known, and cannot be forgot of ageing time. The guilt-begotten child had growth while wood was growing, and endeavoured now to find a way of safe birth. The tree-trunk was swelling and tightened against Mira, who, unable to express her torture, could not call upon Lucina in the usual words of travail. Then, just like a woman in great pain, the tree bends down, and while it groans, bedews itself with falling tears. Lucina stood in pity near the groaning branches, laid her hands on them, and uttered charms to aid the hindered birth. The tree cracked open then, the bark was rent asunder, and it gave forth its living weight, a wailing baby boy. The naiads laid him on soft leaves, and they anointed him with his own mother's tears. Even envy would not fail to praise the child, as beautiful as naked Cupid seen in chosen paintings. 
only give to him a polished quiver, or take theirs from them, and no keen eye could choose him from their midst. Time gliding by without our knowledge cheats us, and nothing can be swifter than the years. That son of sister and grandfather, who was lately hidden in his parent tree, just lately born, a lovely baby boy, is now youth, now man more beautiful than during growth. He wins the love of Venus, and so avenges his own mother's passion. For while the goddess' son, with quiver held on the shoulder, once was kissing his loved mother, it chanced unwittingly he grazed her breast with a projecting arrow. Instantly the wounded goddess pushed her son away, but a scratch had pierced her deeper than she thought, and even Venus was at first deceived. Delighted with the beauty of the youth, she does not think of her Cytherean shores, and does not care for Paphos, which is girthed by the deep sea, nor Gnidos, haunts of fish, nor amateurs far-famed for precious oars. Venus, neglecting heaven, prefers Adonis to heaven, and so she holds close to his ways as his companion, and forgets to rest at noonday in the shade, neglecting care of his sweet beauty. She goes through the woods and over mountain ridges and wild fields, rocky and thornsed, bare to her white knees after Diana's manner and she cheers the hounds, intent to hunt for harmless prey, such as the leaping hare, or the wild stag, high-crowned with branching antlers, or the doe. She keeps away from fierce wild boars, away from ravenous wolves, and she avoids the bears of frightful claws, and lions glutted with the blood of slaughtered cattle. She warns you, Adonis, to beware and fear them, if her fears for you were only heeded. Oh, be brave, she says, against those timid animals which fly from you. But courage is not safe against the bold. Dear boy, do not be rash. Do not attack the wild beasts which are armed by nature, lest your glory may cost me great sorrow. Neither youth nor beauty nor the deeds which have moved Venus have effect on lions, bristling boars, and on the eyes and tempers of wild beasts. Boars have the force of lighting in their curved tusks, and the rage of tawny lions is unlimited. I fear and hate them all. When he inquires the reason, she says, I will tell it. You will be surprised to learn the bad result caused by an ancient crime. But I am weary with unaccustomed toil. And see, a public convenient, offers a delightful shade, and this lawn gives a good couch. Let us rest ourselves here on the grass. So saying, she reclined upon the turf, and, pillowing her head against his breast, and mingling kisses with her words, she told him the following tale. End of Book 10, Part 2